0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or
1: complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
0: Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
2: Hello and welcome to Think Health, Ellen lee Beter with you. Today we explore the ethics of biobanks.
3: What happens when a sample is collected in one country and stored in another country? What is the right of the donor in that instance to withdraw their tissue or to have access to their tissue or to benefit from the findings done on their tissue?
2: And encouraging women to have a vaginal birth after a caesarean section. But first up, according to the World Health Organization, between 10 and 20% of adolescents worldwide experience mental health disorders. In China, that number is around 15% for depression and 25% for anxiety. If mental health disorders are untreated, they can affect an adolescent's education and well-being. Lawrence Lamb is a professor of public health at the University of Technology Sydney he's about to roll out a mental health education program in Guangzhou in southern China. The program will be developed from the Mental Health First Aid Framework which teaches skills like how to recognise the signs and symptoms of mental health problems and where to refer people for help.
0: The problem of mental health issue in China among young people within the age of 13 to around about 18 years old is quite substantial. Even in the a small region, a rural region or a less developed region, there is about fifteen percent to seventy percent of young people experiencing depression. even high percentage of young people experiencing anxiety, around about twenty five percent, and also around about twelve percent of young people reported they are in stress.
2: So sorry, that's fifteen to seventeen percent with depression? Yes,
0: fifteen to seventy percent of depression. And if they are staying in the major city, According to one of my studies, the prevalence of depression is even higher. It could be as high as
2: 20%. So depression for as one mental health illness is higher in cities than it is in regional
0: areas? It is. In terms of the prevalence, it is a general trend that uh, depression is slightly higher among youth staying in the city area than in the rural area. Why is that? Well... This is a kind of interesting feature coming up from the particular base in the Chinese data, because young people in the in, in the rural area they tend to have a little bit more room and they are closer to nature. They tend to be a little bit less stressed because young people in the in the, in the city they probably have have been experiencing a high level higher level of stress, and on top of that, the education system is quite. You would say that is more inducive of exerting pressure and, and stress on young people in the city area rather than the rural area. Now whereas in, in Australia we have a reverse picture, youth in the rural area actually experience a high level of anxiety and, and depression.
2: That's really interesting that in Australia that's flipped so that the prevalence is higher in rural areas than in city areas. Would that have to do with access to well, services? It is
0: absolutely, it is absolutely related to access issue and resource issue. Uh, young people stay in rural area, they are less resourced and also they actually have experienced great hardships uh, in terms of in- less infrastructure, less support, less counseling services and less healthcare support and all this actually contributes to this overall stress.
2: And what about in China? What are the resources like in those
0: more rural areas? Well, um, in fact, in China, it's is, is a very similar picture. Rural area has always been less resourced. Uh, in comparison to a big city, just because of the economic development in the rural area are much slower and also in terms of infrastructure, in terms of overall support. Certainly the government will put more resources in the developing area to support the development. And in in that sense, it is actually quite detrimental for young people in the rural area. But on the other side, they have a high chance of being closer to the nature, being closer to a, a different lifestyle. Uh, so that may actually have a balancing effect. Um, the figure that I quote actually is actually based on a study conducted in the western part of China. This particular province is called Guangzhou, which is the western part of Guangzhou, uh, that a lot of people would know about. Uh, Guangzhou is actually uh, quite a semi-rural to rural area, not to mention that they do actually have big cities like the capital cities of Guangxi province, the um, the landing city, which is the city that I'll be conducting the project in.
2: In this particular region that you're looking at, this semi-rural and rural area, what exactly are you hoping to do? You've got an education program you're about to roll out, is that correct?
0: Exactly. Um, The basic idea of the whole program is actually to target those front line people who will they be? definitely will be teachers, high school teachers, primary school teachers, as well as some of the health professionals. Um, we are not intending to train them as, let's say, mental health professionals, but just to give them enough knowledge and understanding and skills so that they will be able to identify, first of all, identify some of the mental health Uh, Signs and symptoms among young people. And then on top of that, we would like them to be able to uh, have the basic skills, not to be fearful and scared about uh, approaching those young people if they do have or they do exhibit some sort of problems. And they will be able to approach them, at least to offer some of the initial help. Like, for example, just to be an active listener.
2: So for example, if I was a young person in high school and my personality changed, I started becoming a bit more withdrawn, the teacher would be able to recognise that and speak to me.
0: Exactly. And this is exactly what we would like to achieve. Let's say, for example, the class teacher may be able to pay a bit more attention and be more sensitive, basically, be more sensitive to to their students and they will be able to pick up clues or some basic signs and symptoms from their students and say, hey, this particular individual may feel a bit down, this few days and or even for a period of time and they will be able to go and then say hey are you okay and would you like to sit down and have a chat with me and from then on and that will be the starting point and maybe they will be able to pick up more clues through the conversations and, and that in fact will be a very good approach to at least what we call an early intervention and prevention approach.
2: Is there anything like this? Do teachers do, get any training in China around mental health?
0: Well, um, they do actually have some basic training, but not not in a, a systematic way. The way that we are going to approach it is really to adopt uh, the mental health first aid model that's been developed and designed and developed in, in Australia. And this model has been sort of you now um, duplicated and it's been promoted in a lot of different uh, countries. While we are saying that we are going to provide the training, we are not just adopting or duplicating the full model, the the whole model of the mental health first aid or the youth mental health first aid. There will be some translation and then adaptation into the local culture. And that is the reason why we have been working with our partner in China, particularly the School of Public Health in the Guangxi Medical University, of looking into the local issues and how... Would we be able to adopt and translate the Australian motor into China?
2: Lawrence Lamb, Professor of Public Health at the University of Technology Sydney. And if this discussion has raised any issues with you, please call Lifeline on thirteen eleven fourteen.
0: You're listening to Think Health
4: on 2 SCR107.3.
2: that horror movie trope where you walk into a mad scientist's lab and it's full of human specimens, severed limbs, brains floating in jars, that sort of thing? Turns out those sorts of labs aren't the place of fiction. They actually exist and they're called biobanks. Think of them as human libraries which store research samples ranging from blood to bone marrow and brains pair these human libraries with big data and biobanks around the world are able to connect to create global research networks. Sam King joined Dr Paul Mason from the University of Sydney to take a look at the future of these vital research tools.
3: Well, a normal bank would be a bank where you store money. Biobanks are large repositories of biological samples, and those samples can come from humans, animals, or even plants. So a lot of people have heard of the seed vault in Norway, where they've got uh, uh, seeds from all across the world that they're storing for future populations. And uh, so that's one example of of a biobank that stores biological samples from plants. In recent years, there's been a, a large push to create large biobanks, like global biobanks, with human biological samples, so these could be human tissue, could be blood samples, DNA samples, could be any kind of, could even be organs. So there's brain banks, for example, where they do research on, for example, Alzheimer's disease. And for future populations, we hope that these biobanks will become a resource for data analysis and perhaps even uh, drug discovery.
4: I'm imagining like fluorescent lights, lots of plastic and sort of <laughs> can you sort of if you step into the one can you visualize it for me?
3: Sure. There are biobanks where you would have these large almost like a library of of uh, samples that you would pull out from freezer stored cabinets. But now that biobanks are going global and uh, are, are also going a bit virtual, you can have these small collections stored in numerous sites around the place but pooled together in a central Database, So an IT database.
4: And I imagine that's been made possible through the you know, big technological breakthroughs like big data and storage and that sort of thing. Can you talk about how that process is going, networking these biobanks together?
3: Sure. So big data and biobanks do go hand in hand. Biobanks are one vehicle through which big data is, is, is becoming a global exciting phenomenon. So these networks can, can pull together resources from numerous countries. So, for example, there are biobanks in Latin America and in Europe that pull together biological samples from humans from numerous different countries that participate in unions such as the e- European Union. There are also biobanks that centralise their resources. So they uh, they might have financial operations run through the UK and then Uh, sample collection conducted in China, and then the storage facilities located in a different area of China, for example. Uh, So, there's numerous different ways that biobanks can go global, and this, of course, has certain ethical consequences
4: that that flow on from that. But before we touch on that, I wanted to ask, have there been any like massive breakthroughs made possible specifically through biobanks?
3: To answer that question, we'd have to really expand our frame of what a biobank is. So, the collection and storage and analysis of biological samples is central to a lot of basic science research. And so when this has been conducted on small populations, that has had certain benefits. And in fact, for example, research on, on animals, whether you like it or not, has contributed to perhaps extending human longevity by more than 20 years. So I would say that there have been a lot of discoveries made through biological sample collection, storage and analysis. And the hope is that in having these massive repositories in global biobanks, we can really enhance the rate of discovery and the amount of discovery.
4: So that's the good stuff. What about the ethical dilemmas you mentioned?
3: Sure. So in going global, there are numerous ethical dilemmas that we need to, to think about. One is, what happens when a sample is collected in one country and stored in another country? What is the right of the donor in that instance to withdraw their tissue or to have access to their tissue or to benefit from the findings done on their tissue? The other big question that is is in everyone's mind when they think about biobanks, in, in every specialist's mind, is informed consent. How can you ask a potential donor to, to give a biological sample if you don't know what that sample is going to be used for? And that's a, that's a huge uh, ethical question. There's numerous other ones, but the, other one, the last one I would like to flag is these biobanks are really costly endeavors. They're multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar projects. Now, if you have such a costly endeavor and you're investing so much money into it, how do you ensure its sustainability and longevity? And so there is a great potential for these biobanks to then be uh, sold on to pharmaceutical companies with commercial interests.
4: Right, and if you donate your your tissue to it and then it's sold to a pharmaceutical company. Yeah, exactly. What's the deal? Well,
3: indeed, with informed consent, do people consent to that up front? This has to be looked at in, in two ways. So pharmaceutical companies can really help drive... The data analysis from what, what we're collecting in these huge biobanks. On the other hand, they do have com- commercial interests. So they might be able to accelerate the data analysis and, and, and discovery. But on the other hand, the distribution of benefits might
4: be compromised. I wanted to touch on something else as well. I read this study. It comes out of a university in Sweden called Uppsala University. It found that the length of time that a blood sample has been stored in a biobank might affect test results on the blood as much as a factor like the donor's age. So they're finding just now that storage time is a massive factor when it comes into these tissue samples. How can we ensure that research conducted using biobank samples is as sound as possible? Oh, this is a this is a fantastic question and that that is one
3: example of how data collection and storage across different countries can adhere to different standards of practice. There are are numerous ways in which the quality of tissue can be affected through the reagents used, the storage temperature, the facilities, human handling. Uh, And across countries, once you have divergent standards of practice, this potentially does harm what we call the veracity of the research findings and veracity means the dimension of truth that we can get from these and, and the robustness of the data that we are analyzing.
4: How do you prevent against that? Does it need to be like a central body that I, I know this is this is all speculation and hypotheticals, but in your opinion, what's the best way to to control the quality? So for one,
3: research like this project done at Uppsala University is really important to understand how tissue changes over time as it is stored under stable conditions. So that's one dimension of understanding how to account for the degradation of tissue or changes that occur over time. The other one is to have standardized practices of data collection and storage across different settings if they're contributing to the same biobank and to be absolutely transparent about those processes so that they can be factored into uh, analysis In
4: the most robust ways possible. Uh, So what is the true potential of this technology? Give it a decade or two. Where do you see this going? So uh,
3: biobanks for big data researchers are are absolutely fascinating and and really exciting because if you want to do clinical trials, you've got to go through a lot of hoops to to get to the point where you can uh, test, for example, a drug or a surgical procedure upon population of, of patients. And the beauty about biobank research is that you're doing it on a ready-made population of samples. Now, it's not the same as clinical research, and I'm, I'm certainly wary about letting biobanks to have a monopoly over research practices, but they're going to be a very useful resource for future populations.
2: Dr. Paul Mason, Research Fellow from the University of Sydney, ending that story by Sam King. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. It's common knowledge that vaginal birth is more beneficial for mums and bubs than a caesarean section, yet Australia still has one of the highest caesarean rates in the world. Part of the problem is that once you've had one caesarean section, there is a perception in the healthcare system that you can't have a vaginal birth for your second or subsequent baby. Marilyn Ferrer is a professor of midwifery at the University of Technology, Sydney. She has looked at how midwives and obstetricians view the practicalities of vaginal birth after caesarean section, also known as VBAC.
1: Caesarean section does have a number of risks. We think it's incredibly safe because we've had decades of undertaking caesarean section with very good anaesthetic so that the woman doesn't experience any pain. Usually the situation has been when we've had relatively small numbers of caesareans that mother and baby are fit and well at the end of the procedure. That's what we aim for. Uh, That's when the rates were around under 15%. These days our rates of caesarean section have risen so high, over 30%, that we're now seeing that there are actually complications to the caesarean section operation that we hadn't possibly encountered when the numbers were so small. But there are now many studies that have established that caesarean section has a number of risks associated with it, not only to the mother, but importantly to her baby, that will affect short-term and long-term health for both of them. So Uh, caesarean section is not without risk. Therefore, it behoves us first of all to try to limit caesarean sections to only cases where it's absolutely needed. Uh, And given that one of the main contributors to our rising caesarean section rate is a repeat caesarean, because you had one the first time, we need to encourage more women to try for a vaginal birth, even if they had a a caesarean section the first time around.
2: And this is where your study, vaginal birth after caesarean section, comes in. So you've looked at how midwives and obstetricians view VBAC. Yes. Was there a difference between
1: the two groups? Generally, both of the groups said that they were very supportive of women choosing a vaginal birth after caesarean section. Largely this was in the light of current uh, policies, particularly the New South Wales Health Towards Normal Birth Policy, which has given a lot of support to the idea that attempting a vaginal birth after a caesarean is an important choice that women can make and they can make it safely. Whilst the risk of a problem with the previous uterine scar is there, it is a very, very small risk that anything might happen. What's the uterine scar? Okay. When you have a caesarean section, obviously the abdomen is cut on the outside, but then the uterus is cut on the inside of the woman's body in order to get the baby out. After the operation, the uterus is stitched together again and then the abdomen is stitched together. The big fear has been that in a subsequent pregnancy, labour and birth, that scar on the uterus stretches because the the uterus has stretched with the large baby inside of it, but also the very act of the uterus contracting during labour might make that scar stretch further. And in a very, very, very small number of cases, that scar can start to actually separate. If it separates to a large degree before the baby's actually born, the baby might be born into the mother's abdomen. This is called um, a uterine dehiscence or rupture. That's pretty, pretty it's, gory. It's Well, it's not that gory, but it's of great risk to the baby because the baby can't really survive outside of the... Uterus inside the mother's abdomen for any length of time. So you'd have to have an emergency caesarean section in that case um, or an emergency <laughs> abdominal procedure to um, rescue the baby.
2: But you say that's very rare.
1: Well, the rate of uterine scar dehiscence, which is potentially a small or a large separation of that scar, is around two per thousand women. So it's pretty unusual for it to occur. So it depends on your perspective. From um, a science perspective, that rate is about the same that you would find in women having their first baby.
2: Right. So, in an nor- otherwise normal pregnancy, nerves yeah, yeah.
1: can rupture. Yeah. And are these the sort
2: of con- conversations that midwives and obstetricians are having with women who are having a second yeah. baby after a cesarean section?
1: Absolutely. It's very important to give very accurate information to the women about not only the potential benefits of vaginal birth, but also the potential risks of attempting a vaginal birth after a cesarean section, so that they can weigh up the risks and benefits for themselves. We need to do it in a way that the language is not fear-inducing. So we actually try to not use words like rupture, which sounds pretty or gory, certainly. (laughs) I'm glad that's your (laughs) word, not mine. Um, We try not to use language like that, but just to try to explain what a scar dehiscence means. And um, it can be relatively minor. So we use, hopefully, fairly neutral language, but accurately describe what the potential risks are. But also what the potential benefits of a vaginal birth are. And many women who've had a cesarean say, you know, I'd really like to be able to have an experience like my friends, where they're up and about the next day and they're feeding the baby and carrying on as normal. Whereas I was really quite disabled for some time after my cesarean. Because you can't even drive after a cesarean. Yeah, and uh, you're usually advised not to drive for at least six weeks. I don't know many women who obey that, but that's what women are told. Yeah. And
2: the midwives and obstetricians in your study, were they confident in giving women the option of a vaginal birth?
1: Uh, yes, they were. Certainly the ones that participated in our research. Of course, you always have to consider that they might have just been telling you what they thought you wanted to hear, Um, but we talked for quite a while and generally speaking, it seemed like they were very comfortable with the idea that um, it was quite acceptable for women to choose a vaginal birth after a previous cesarean section and very happy to support women doing that.
2: And for women who do decide to have that vaginal birth after cesarean section, how many of them are actually successful?
1: Well, the some studies vary, but the rates generally around about seventy percent are going to be successful if you have a go at vaginal at vaginal birth next time.
2: One of the things that jumped out for me was a comment from a midwife about her saying to one of her patients, "You have to own the decision that you make." Yeah What happens between the, in those forty, forty two weeks that can often change a woman's decision?
1: Yeah. Of course, she's going to meet people who may not be as positively predisposed towards attempting a vaginal birth after a previous caesarean section. So she will maybe find a friend who's had a caesarean or um, attempted a vaginal birth next time that wasn't successful. So she'll get negative feedback. Or I think women, when they discuss these kinds of um, numbers with their friends, if they're aware of them... For some people, a rate of, of around two per thousand would be incredibly low, but therefore, there are other people for whom this kind of a risk sounds incredibly high. And so, you either sit on it's low from my perspective or it's high. So, you have to make up uh, your own mind about what kind of a risk you're willing to, to take. Quite often, it's their partners who don't want to see them going through another labour and experiencing the disappointment of a caesarean section at the end of a labour that doesn't progress the way that it needs to. So they're going to meet potentially lots of negative comments uh, during the course of their pregnancy. So if they are keen to choose attempt a vaginal birth after caesarean section, it's it's great to be able to say, yep, that's what I'm doing and I'm committed to. That's my uh, course of action. Of course, it's always possible and reasonable to at the last minute say no I've changed my mind uh, I don't want to do this I'll have a cesarean and we respect women's choices no matter where in the course of of their pregnancy they're making that decision.
2: Marilyn Ferrer Professor of Midwifery at the University of Technology Sydney. If you'd like to find out more about that story or anything else you've heard today, head to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Health. If you've enjoyed today's show, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss a moment. While we do our best to present valid research, journalists are not doctors. Go and see GP if you have any concerns. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. I'm Ellen Lee Bader. See you next week.